slash good afternoon or good evening or whenever you're, you're uh, listening to this podcast. Uh, it's morning when we're recording, which is not a normal thing. And I have made myself as awake as I'm going to sound. <laughs> you, you did say right before we uh, did a segment already today that you needed one more splash of coffee. Yeah. Um, and there's really no excuse for that because we started recording at like 9.45 my time. There's, there's really – now granted, we work – I work nights – uh, I am not a morning person at all, uh, but uh, 9.45, like you still be still be a functioning adult by 9.45 in the morning. And yet, here I am, uh, having made it to 34 years old, not that way. I mean, everything you just said sounded cohesive to me, so we're yes. off to a rip-roaring start. I yes! Think. Making it work. Faking my way through it. Uh, so, hey, we welcome you into this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. My name is Tyler Mon. His name is Sam Dykstra. We're talking uh, all things MILB today, including uh, a new Top 100 list, a trade, some more prospect projections, some defunct ballparks, uh, and it's uh, going to be a loaded show. We're excited, Sam. We are excited. Are we no, and... W- when you mention a trade, I'm just going to get out ahead of this because the uh, baseball cycle is always crazy, and yeah. uh, even when we think it's quiet, it's not. There's a lot of rumors out there about a Mookie Betts trade. It doesn't seem like it's imminent, but that's it always doesn't seem like it's imminent until it is. So if you're listening to this and a Mookie Betts trade has happened either to the Dodgers, Padres, or some mystery team, uh, and it seems like we're not covering it, it's because it hasn't happened yet. Um, you know, we'll see if it ever happens this off season, but, uh, you know, if it, if it does, we'll probably discuss it next week unless it's huge and then we'll do some bonus episode or something like that. But the major trade we're going to talk about here in the, in three strikes is not a Mookie Betts trade yet. Right. So just want to say that here from the off. Um, and just as a, a public service announcement, uh, if you were going to be on Twitter and retweet, a trade, report that seems outlandish just go ahead and double check and make sure that it's a legit source uh because the other day one of those fake jeff passan accounts first they were all the fake ken rosenthal accounts now there's so many fake jeff passan accounts and the other day if you're gonna be an internet troll who makes up a fake journalist account at least try to make it somewhat realistic in the uh, in the fake trades that you're suggesting, because the the scenario that went out there was like, oh, the San Diego Padres will get Mookie Betts in exchange for like nine different guys, four top prospects, two major league. Like, come on. So at least uh, if you're going to be a person who wants to retweet those things, make sure they're legit. And if you're going to be one of the idiots who tries to start it, uh, you got to put in a little more effort than that. Yeah, two, <laughs> it's a two-step process, really. One, check to see if there's a blue check mark, and apparently that's easier to fake now than it used to be. I don't know. I feel like oh, people, interesting. I don't know if it's looking. It looks exactly like the blue check mark, but you can be confused. Okay, that's fine. But look at what the actual name is, like the avatar. Like some, it used to be Ken Rosenthal, but Rosenthal, the L in Rosenthal right. is a one or something like that, or, or a, capital or an I. I. Yeah, but now teams are like, or whoever's doing this, uh, they're not changing their Twitter name. Yeah. So yeah. it'd be like baseball rules one four two. But <laughs> the other day Jeff it was, <laughs> the other day the Jeff Passan one was no joke ISIS disliker. Yeah, And I like the idea of somebody just sitting around thinking like, well, maybe Jeff Passan was just super uh, political five years ago when he set up this account. You know, yeah, I, take it, the extra minute. Make sure it's real. Yeah. Also, we live in an age, uh, and this is a diatribe for another time, but like it's great that trades break before they're official. But a lot of times they're official like 
half an hour later. Yeah. So if you are worried about it, maybe step away from the phone for a second, see if it's going to be official, and come back thirty minutes later. Yeah. It's not the end of Plus, the. Plus, you know, yeah, nobody's uh, nobody's relying on you to break the story anyway. Right. And by by that, I'm I'm telling us that as well uh, you know we're we're fans and observers just like most of you um so with that let's dive into three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show the brand spanking new top 100 list is here mlb pipeline unveiling its top 100 prospects in the game of baseball the tampa bay rays loaded with six players in the top 100 more than any other franchise including top overall prospect Wander Franco uh, the shortstop who reached class A advanced Charlotte last year about a 327 with an 885 OPS at 18 years old he'll turn 19 on March 1st um, this is obviously a, a really fun group uh, even just in the top 10 you've got uh, Wander Franco Gavin Lux who is uh, a guy the Los Angeles Dodgers are trying to figure out a spot for uh, Luis Robert who we know signed the big deal with the Chicago White Sox Adley Rushman the first overall pick in the draft last year Mackenzie Gore in the San Diego Padres organization uh, there are just ridiculous talents that you're probably going to be seeing on major league fields as soon as April uh, but Sam your, your breakdown your thoughts on this year's top 100. Yeah, let's just run down the rest of the top 10 there real quick. So Mackenzie Gore is at number five. Uh, Joe Adele, Angels outfielder, is number six. Casey Mize is number seven, another top overall pick from a couple years ago. Nate Pearson, hard-throwing right-hander from the Toronto Blue Jays, is number eight. Royce Lewis, another top overall pick from a couple years ago. Uh, Shortstop with the Twins is number nine. And Bobby Witt Jr., who was number two last year uh, to the Kansas City Royals, he's a shortstop. He's number 10. Uh, Some of the interesting things about this – is that you know there are multiple lists out there. We use MLB Pipeline because we're under the same umbrella as them, um, but there's many other sources out there. And I think one of the interesting discussions we can have, at least in terms of this top ten, is Gap and Lux or Luis Robert. Uh, everybody is under the same auspices that Wander Franco is the top overall prospect in baseball. What I find really interesting about his ranking right now is that uh, MLB.com gave him an 80-grade hit tool. That's a future tool, so that's not saying right now, <clears throat> excuse me, at 18 years old, he would be you know a top-line hitter in the major leagues, but someday his tools project to be that way. We're, we've seen that because he makes tremendous contact and he's a switch hitter and you know he hit 327 last year again at 18 years old between class a and class a advanced that's very rare the last time we talked about that was vladimir guerrero jr when he was doing something similar and then he went into that similar age range and nearly hit 400 i'm not saying wander frank is going to hit nearly 400 because that never happens in the minor leagues i shouldn't say never very very rarely happens in the minor leagues but Franco is putting himself on that tier. Um, so it, it's not a huge surprise to see that happen. But when you have an 80-grade offensive tool, that's going to put you in the 1-1 conversation. And that's what Franco is here. But Lux versus Robert, for me, I think is much, much closer. Gavin Lux coming off a really special season. He ended up making the major leagues last year. I think that might be what tips him here over Robert is that we've seen him in majors. Yes, his numbers over 23 games with the Dodgers last year aren't terribly great he hit 240 at a 705 ops but at least we know he can hold his own and again being pretty young he he turned 22 in november so this will be his age 22 season up here in, in 2020 um the fact that he's already reached the majors leaves a lot of projection there but Luis robert i think does a lot more other things uh Luis Robert can hit for power better than Gavin Lux can, I think. He's definitely got a better run tool. Uh, he's more likely, 
I, I wouldn't say to stick up the middle, but to play a more premium position. Uh, I think he's going to stick in center field. He's got the, the speed to do it. He's got the arm to do it. The biggest question with Robert, and I think this is why he gets pinged down below Lux, is the hit tool questions. There's a decent chance he's going to be a very good hitter. Right now, there's just a lot of swing and miss, especially with breaking stuff. Uh, he struck out 129 times last year in 122 games. This is not something like some of the other swing happy prospects we talk about somebody like Amante Harrison for example just to, not to single him out but he's somebody I think about who has a high K rate Robert's not there but it is enough to be a worry and we haven't seen what he can do at the major league level yet there's a decent chance he hits 270 280 with a lot of strikeouts and that limits his value whereas Gavin Lux we think can hit well enough and make enough contact to hit for power either play shortstop or second base. I know the Dodgers have thrown out. Maybe he'll see the outfield. I don't necessarily see that happening, but um, play up the middle defensively as an infielder, probably more second base at this point. Uh, I, I I think that's an interesting discussion. I think I would go Robert because I'm more willing to bet on tools, but the fact that Lux is already there, I think makes him a safer bet. We know what his floor can be in the major leagues, whereas Robert, we don't know that yet. So that's some of the bets here that the pipeline folks are making. Uh, another one I want to point out real quick is Adele at number six. That's another discussion of tools versus you know, what, what was the last thing we saw from him. Because Joe Adele... He's been in the discussion for first overall prospect. I know there are some other sites that like him maybe a little bit more than number six. Uh, so to see him come below Adley Rutschman, who is very good and obviously first overall pick last year, but hasn't really proven himself in the minors yet. And Mackenzie Gore, who was our starting pitcher of the year last year, uh, but is a pitcher and pitching prospects can be much more fickle, uh, is a little bit telling to me. Adele's problem last year, he made it up to A Salt Lake. Uh, had just a 676 OPS there at a time where obviously offense exploded at AAA. Would have loved to have seen him carry some of those numbers. Part of that could be he, he was coming off a lot of leg issues last year. Uh, Tyler, you saw him play for Team USA. He looked pretty good at the end of the year there, playing in an obviously higher pressure environment. Uh, Joe Adele's going to hit for a lot of power. He can really run. He can really field. All signs point to him, you know, filling up a big role in the Los Angeles outfield at some point in 2020, hopefully in the first half, as long as he can prove his health and hit a little bit at AAA. Uh, so to see him follow the number six, I think, again, it's just worries about what his floor can be, but his ceiling is up there with with the Francos, with the Luxes, and with the Roberts. Uh, you know, There's a time we might be talking about it if he does everything we expect him to do in the PCL. This ranking, I think, could look low as early as late April or something like that. Uh, two other guys in the top 10 I'll touch on quick that are a little bit surprising to me that they're still in the top 10. Uh, not in a bad way, but just, you know, it stood out to me um, is that Casey Mize and Royce Lewis are both still top 10 overall prospects. Like I said before, number one overall picks in previous years, Mize in, in 2018, uh, Lewis in, in 2017. So I, I, not that I'm saying they're coasting on their reputation, but Royce Lewis, as we've discussed before, had a really down year last year between Class A advance and AA. Uh, didn't have an OPS above 700 in either spot. Still showed some of the good tools, especially his run tool. He finished with 22 stolen bases. Uh, they started to move him around a lot in the AFL. He ended up being the AFL MVP. I think that helped his stock a little bit. It seemed like he was somebody who was fidgeting too much with his hitting last year instead of trying to settle on something that was going to work. Uh, so, you know, you, you hope that 
he's learned from that and then the tools are still there and it's something you can project. Uh, but without you know, with that history of being somebody who can be a little too finicky, that can be a little too willing to change things and mess with something that had been working. Um, I thought he might have dropped a little bit lower. MLB still high on him and still high on his potential to figure it out. Mize, based on results, you know, the stuff is certainly there. The results were certainly there. Uh, he had a two five five ERA last year in 109 and a third innings. Uh, struck out 106, walked only 23. His fastball slider and splitter are all plus pitches. He's got plus control. You can understand why if a pitching prospect is going to work in their top 10, this is a good place to be with what he has. The reason why I'm surprised he's in the top 10 is – uh, you know, he had some shoulder issues last year. He actually got shut down in August. And at a time when, again, we're talking about pitching prospects can be fickle. And where do we want to rank them based on that? Because injuries are so prominent among young pitchers. And now he's got a little bit of an injury history in pro ball. Uh, you know, are you more willing to let somebody else, you know, kind of move up a little bit? Uh, and, you know, Put Mize a little bit lower. I know Fangraphs just came out with their Tigers rankings. They actually had Matt Manning, who doesn't have this injury history and pitched all of last year at Double A. They had Manning above Mize just because those shoulder issues are a little too worrisome about Mize. So, you know, again, it, it's what what do you want to bet on? Do you want to bet on ceiling? Do you want to bet on floor? These are all things that go into these rankings that I find interesting. Uh, one other one that I want to highlight here quick while we're talking about it. Marco Luciano jumping up to number 35 in the San Francisco Giants system. Um, this time last year, we thought the Giants system was basically a, a two-player system. It was Joey Barton, Elliot Ramos. Uh, Luciano showed that he might actually have the highest ceiling of anybody there. Uh, him jumping up to number 35 is an indication of somebody, you know, I think he's the next big thing when it comes to prospects. He, he certainly showed it last year, moving straight to the AZL and hitting 322 with 10 homers in 38 games uh, for the AZL Giants. To put him here, I think, is an indication of we just need to see a little bit more because the tools are there. He's hitting for power. He's got a good arm. He might move over to third base at some point, but the offensive value is certainly there for him. Uh, if you want to ticket somebody who's going to be maybe in the top five this time next year, I think it's Luciano. We just see, need to see a little bit more than 47 games for him, and, and I hope we will. You know, hopefully starting this year at Class A and, and seeing what he can do over 120 plus games uh, at a full season level. But uh, looking at where it stands next, I think Luciano might have the biggest helium of anybody here in the top 100. Strike two this week, uh, a trade, and as Sam noted, it's not the one that maybe you're thinking of, but a trade that uh, went down and has been official for a few days now. The Arizona D-backs acquiring outfielder Starling Marte on the major league side from the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Diamondbacks in exchange, sending two minor leaguers who are a little ways away but potentially high ceilings, uh, shortstop Leo Verpaguero and right-hander Brennan Malone, who both head to Pittsburgh. The Pirates also uh, gained $250,000 in international bonus money, and the D-backs will also receive cash considerations which i always imagine is just a team going cash we'll consider it um <laughs> the two prospects that go to arizona in the, or they go to pittsburgh rather in this deal uh Piguero and malone were respectively number 18 and number nine in the arizona system at the time of the deal uh the pirates rankings obviously every team's rankings coming out next month um from mlb pipeline they'll probably be ranked higher in that pittsburgh system but um sam breaking down this deal what stands out yeah so at least in the 2019 rankings where uh 
be pipeline, plug these guys in. Peguero is number seven. Uh, Malone is now number eight. Again, that's probably going to change. They're going to do updated rankings for 2020. But right now, they comfortably fit in the top 10 for the Pirates. Uh, you know, if you're a Pirates fan and you were hoping to get a top 100 prospect, somebody you might recognize uh, for Starling Marte, who has been a you know, big part of that Pirates outfield for a couple of years now, this might look disappointing on that end. But really what I think the Pirates did here is, is they did pretty well. They got two lottery tickets for sure. Neither of these guys have played full season ball yet. Malone was just a, a 33rd overall pick last year uh, and Piguero, you know, split his time between Hillsborough and rookie advanced Missoula uh, last year as well. So these aren't guys who have really proven themselves on the big stage, but I think Piguero, speaking of guys with tons of helium, I think he definitely got it. He only signed for $475,000 in, in July 2017, but is already kind of a top 100 on the cusp I would say, uh, type prospect. He showed a good hit tool last year with Missoula. He hit 364 in 38 games. Um, showed a, a decent amount of pop for somebody who stands six foot 160 pounds. He hit five homers, uh, stole eight bases. He's got a plus run tool. The, the power feels like something he can certainly grow into. Um, you know, the, it, he is a shortstop. He's likely to stick at shortstop, which, you know, we talked about some of the other shorts. Wander Franco's not exactly a lock to stick it short gavin lux we've already seen move over to second base royce lewis as we mentioned the twins moved him around plenty uh last afl i think in mlb pipelines top 10 shortstop prospects the only one who was guaranteed to stick at that position was bobby witt jr so saying peguero is likely to stick it short is a really big bet on him it's how much is the offensive uh side of his game going to develop in the next couple of years as he gets more used to seeing high-level pitching, uh, that's going to determine his ceiling. But the ceiling is fairly high if that if that works out because somebody who can be a good shortstop, be a good hitter, hit for some power, show a good run tool, all the pieces are there for him to be a really toolsy prospect. He just needs to show it over a longer period. And then Malone, again, the, the pieces are there for him to be a good starting pitcher. Uh, he's only 19 years old. He turned 19 in September. Uh, he's shown a plus – to plus plus fastball, a plus slider, curveball and changeup are more average. He's still got a, a little ways to to work with the control. He walked five batters in seven innings last year in the AZL. Smallest of sample sizes, obviously, but just kind of indicative of somebody who needs to work on that part of his game. He comes in at 6'4", 205 pounds. He's got the size to throw for velocity. Uh, you know, he's played at IMG Academy. He's been on the high school invitational. Um, He's been under that pressure a little bit and obviously performed well enough to be the 33rd overall pick. Uh, so, you know, these guys are not top 100 types, but you could envision, a, again, a year from now and seeing Malone maybe being the top pitching prospect in the system and Baguero, depending on how things work out with Hayes and O'Neill Cruz, being at least one of the best infield prospects in this pirate system, uh, maybe even headlining it if he continues to hit as well as he did last year in the Pioneer League when he moves up this year uh, to, to Class A Greensboro, if that is where they start him out. Um, so, again, I, I know Starling Marte was a, a big building block in Pittsburgh and somebody when you trade a face of the franchise in that way, you want more than lottery tickets. But I think these are two players that can grow. Uh, they certainly have more value than what they're just showing right now. Uh, and we could be talking about them as – Faces of the, 
the farm system just here in a couple months. So I think there's a lot to like here from the Pittsburgh side as well as the Arizona side that got a little bit better as they're trying to chase down the Dodgers in the NL West and, and everybody else in the National League with two of, the, two of those wild card spots. And that segues us well into strike three, National League Central prospect projections up on the site right now. Obviously, those two guys not included uh, in this conversation, but Pittsburgh Pirates among them, Sam. Yeah, the, the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, are actually very interesting to me in terms of what are they going to be doing with um, with Mitch Keller. Uh he wasn't the biggest crux of this story, but just to continue on what Tyler was talking about, uh, Mitch Keller actually, according to Steamer 600 projections, is going to be the best rookie starting pitcher in baseball this year. Uh, he just snuck past Brendan McKay for the best war projection among rookie pitchers, 3.3 war compared to Brendan McKay's 3.2. Uh, I know he was not very good in the majors last year. He got hit pretty hard, but his peripherals were actually very good. He had a 3.19 FIP, which was much better than his ERA, which was 7.13. Uh, he averaged 12.2 strikeouts per nine innings during his, his major league stints last year. If he can pitch more towards FIP than his ERA, that's a very good pitcher there. And Fangraphs is more likely to base their uh, war projections off of FIP than they are ERA anyway. So... Uh, Steamer 600 has him down for a 4.15 ERA, 9.6 K per nine, 1.32 whip. That is a very good starting pitcher as far as that goes. Uh, there are other pieces of Keller's game that he has to figure out. The changeup has long been a discussion point for him. A lot of people don't see that as a viable third option for him. How is he going to make that work? Because against major league pitchers, you need a third pitch, or major league hitters rather, you need a third pitch to continue these strikeout numbers. Um, but for anybody who was down on Keller before, these projections should get you back up. Uh, and in terms of the rest of the projections story, uh, the main crux of it for me was I, I find this Cardinals outfield situation fascinating. Uh, you know, they let Marcelo Zuna go to free agency. They traded Jose Martinez and Randy Arizarena to the Rays on January 9th. Um, you know, we wanted to see Dylan Carlson fight his way into that outfield and letting three outfielders go would seem to indicate that his path is a little bit clear. The projections back that up to an extent. Uh, his 1.6 war projection is second highest among potential Cardinals outfielders behind only Harrison Bader. Uh, his WRC plus would be 94, which is a little bit below average. And it's difficult to make the case that he's major league ready if he's a little bit below average. Uh, but looking at the other options here, nobody else among outfield options is higher than 99. We know Dylan Carlson can do other things that are not going to be worked into these projections yet. They don't take to, into account minor league defense. By all accounts, he can play all three outfield spots. He played a lot of center field last year. Anybody you talk to in the Cardinals organization values that, but also values the fact that he forced his way into becoming an everyday center fielder. That's not going to happen with Bader, but either in left or right, wherever they decide to play him, uh, he can provide value on that end. He is a good runner. He's going to provide extra value there. I really hope, not that they look at these projections, but for the Cardinals' sake, you know, in what is becoming a more and more crowded NL Central, obviously the Cubs and Brewers, at least the Brewers are trying to be good this year. The Cubs were still trying to figure out what they're going for exactly. Maybe they trade Chris Bryant. Maybe they don't. Uh, but all those two teams are looking like contenders. The Reds are obviously bulking up. They signed Nick Castellanos uh, this week. They've made a ton of other additions. They're trying to compete there. The Cardinals are trying to hold serve. They're trying to go back to the postseason 
if Dylan Carlson is one of their three best outfield options, you would hope he starts with the big club. Because there are so many options, I'm not going to hold my breath on that. It, he only got a very limited time at AAA Memphis last year. It's possible they send him back, make him demand to be sent up uh, with his play. But as things stand now, he is firmly in the discussion this spring to earn one of the three starting spots on the grass. And uh, yeah, and I think even this projection is a little low on him based on the other things he can do other than just hit. And we have one foul ball topic this week. The San Francisco Giants announced that uh, former big, leaguer, big leaguer Pat Burrell is now the hitting coach in San Jose, uh, which is uh, it's kind of one of those guys that I haven't thought about in a while, I guess. And then uh, he pops up on the minor league radar, and it's like, oh, yeah, Pat Burrell. Uh, but that's a, a cool hire in San Jose. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed talking to Pat Burrell a couple weeks ago for a tool shit I, I did last Friday. Uh, just because, like you said, Tyler, he's somebody who – you know, growing up for me was just somebody you knew about. You always saw him pop up with the Phillies and, you know, eventually I won rings with both the Phillies and the Giants. Uh, a, a recognizable name to most of us who have been around the game for a while, but he's not going to be coaching guys who have been around the game that long. So I thought that was an interesting dichotomy. Uh, asked him, you know, how do you introduce yourself to guys who were either born when you w- – were drafted in 98 or weren't even born yet and may not recognize you as a an established major leaguer uh he seems to be fully bought in into learning about the game himself uh it's it, you know he was somebody who mentioned directly when he was coming up through college in the minors he was taught hit the heart the, hit the ball hard on the ground they can't catch it if you do that and obviously the game has, has changed from that uh it's get the ball into the air hit it as hard as you can hit it up the middle uh and that's how good things will happen uh he's gone through different learning opportunities he said he went to on base university to learn about the modern game in some way um so you you have somebody who has that mix of experience with multiple years in the major leagues, again, multiple World Series wins, and somebody who's willing to learn about the modern game, I find that kind of fascinating. And we'll see how that works out with San Jose. But uh, one thing to keep an eye on with that San Jose club, it's likely that Hunter Bishop, their first-round pick last year with the Giants, uh, is going to start the year at San Jose. He's somebody who was a college performer. Pat Burrell was a college performer. He was a Golden Spikes Award winner. I would be interested to see how those two pair up. Uh, Burrell... Coming up was a little bit of a first baseman, but also saw some time on the outfield. A lot he can work with Hunter Bishop on, and maybe that's a relationship that works out well for the two of them in terms of getting used to coaching and also getting used to playing everyday ball again uh, in the Cal League. So so keep an eye on that San Jose team and uh, see how well they perform under first-year coach Pat Burrell. And that will do it for three strikes on this week's episode of The Show Before the Show. We're joined this week on the podcast by Cardinals second round pick last year, budding outfield prospect Trajan Fletcher. Trajan, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks so much for joining us. Um, so you're one of my favorite prospects to have on during the offseason because this is your first real offseason. Like we said, you were taken in the draft last June. Um, you've never gone through this. We were just talking before – this segment started that you've been in Palm Beach since, since September. Um, you know, just compare your life now to where it was 12 months ago. I mean, what is it like preparing for a full 
minor league season and preparing as baseball being your full-time job now? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a lot different. There's no more waking up for classes. Instead, it's waking up for, for morning lifts. Um, it's, it's definitely not, not something that it, it took me a while to get used to. I got, I got used to it pretty quick. Uh, I mean, I, I'm used to playing baseball every day in the summer. And just, just for that to carry on, I feel like that's, that's pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, just playing baseball every day down here in the offseason. Uh, I'm down here in Florida because, you know, the, 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 the Cardinals offered me uh, some, some resources down here so I can use the facilities every day. And just the weather, especially for being up, up north and the offseason, you never have that, that outdoor uh, practicing or anything. It's always indoors and now. I can go do some outfield work, some some anything I anything I need, any time of day, pretty much, unless it rains. Hmm. Yeah, and, and what kind of off season program have they given you, or is this mostly you doing your own off season workouts? I mean, how much are they guiding you, even as you are at the facility, like you said, almost every day? Yeah, so uh, they their strength coaches there every day, uh, all day long. Um, I, uh, they, they gave me a, I'm on a weight program currently that's for myself and what, what I personally need to work on and strengthen my, my own body, um, to, to, and they, uh, they put these programs together because we do some testing like once a month or something, and then they'll tweak our, our workout program or with what they have us on, depending on that. And. Yeah, they're there every day. If I if I don't have know what I need to do or don't know how to do an exercise or something, I just ask them. They'll they'll show me. They're usually talking throughout the workout, and they're just it's pretty cool to be around here. Hmm. And how do you feel like your game is already changing, based on you know this decision to go pro and also the ability to be down there and working every day, like you said, being able to be outdoors, being able to get in proper outfield work in a way. Uh, how do you feel like your game's already grown just since you, know, you ended your season with Johnson City? Uh, I'd say tremendously. Um, through the technology with hitting, um, uh, the, the data that we collected last season, and working with you know some big league guys are down here, some big league coaches are down here, and coaches throughout the, the organization system, all levels, they've been in and out. And uh, it's just... It's really good getting insight from everybody else. Uh, different little tips and, and fielding, little little footwork tips. And it's just like, I feel like I've grown to a completely different level since the season ended. And kind of bouncing off something you mentioned there, specifically in terms of data, that's something I imagine you didn't have much experience with at all in high school and, and your prep days. Uh, what's maybe the most eye-opening piece of data that they have given to you so far that you've been able to, you know, place into your game or alter about your game? What, what's the biggest stat you feel like they've given you that, that's been most helpful? Um, ooh, in terms of, like, technology? Yeah. I'd say probably a scouting report on other pitchers. Um, that like during like during the season that really helps. Um, right now, is like these these blast sensors that we're using, or we're hitting, and it gives you 
like absolutely everything you need to know about your swing, and it also gives you like a our coaches kind of put together how to how to fix it. Like here's what you're doing, here's how to fix it, um, and that's really helpful. Hmm. See, those are those those are my two top. Yeah, no, fair enough. All right, so let's go back to what this last 12 months has been like for you. Um, you know, last January, uh, you were committed to Vanderbilt. You're going into to Maine. Talk about the whole process for you to even enter this draft because you weren't necessarily classified for 2020. Then you make the decision to classify as a senior. Uh, take, take us through, for people who haven't heard this story before, about your decision to go home to Maine and, and – be ready for the 2020 or 20, 2019 draft. Yeah, so I uh, when I when I transferred into the the 2019 class, I wasn't even uh, trying to deciding. I wasn't even planning on going into the draft, and then because uh, I was already like I was already past the due due date, everything to be fully ready or checked in or whatever for the draft, have everything in, and. Uh, I was planning on going to college a year earlier than than planned. And then when I found out that I had the opportunity to still be in the draft and that maybe I had the possibility that I could be put into it, uh, that was something that uh, made uh, my advisors at the time um, over at Boris. Uh, they helped, they were, they were communicating with me like every day and uh, helped me with that process. And then they, they got me entered into the draft. Hmm. And at what point did you feel like it was a real possibility? Because, you know, being a, a player in Maine, a lot of people like to tell the story about Mike Trout, and a lot of scouts missed him because he was playing in New Jersey. It got rainy that spring. It was tough to see him. Yours is almost that to the nth degree. Uh, season starts even later. It, it was even more difficult to find you and, and get good scouting on you. When did you first notice scouts just showing up for your high school games up there? Yeah, uh, so we had a we had a preseason game. Um, I didn't even really, I hadn't even talked to pro scouts yet, um, and I didn't realize that uh, this is before I even knew I was gonna be eligible. For, like, right when I found out, I was gonna be eligible for the draft, and then I think I had like sixteen, seventeen, maybe show up for my like a preseason game. And uh, I was kind of surprised. It was freezing. I was, <laughs> I, I was, I was and uh, pretty much throughout the season, it was it was kind of if if people got up, they they came, saw the f- first half of the game or something, got cold. It wasn't really good baseball, so like it wasn't entertaining to watch. It was kind of like a miserable. It was more miserable for like the scouts, I'd say, than like it. It kind of was playing. Because playing in the freezing cold and getting pitched around all season isn't like the most fun thing, and losing every game, <laughs> almost. But yeah, they showed up. I think the first preseason game, and uh, we, uh, I think this, the whole season we had three practices outside, so we, they couldn't even come to our practices. Mm. So, so how do you feel like you show off in those moments? Because, like you said being the draft prospect in Maine, you're going to get pitched around a lot. You were the highest pick ever out of a Maine high school. Uh, so you, you can't really show off your bat in that way. You can't really show off your bat in, in practice. I know you were on some showcase circuits, but 
in interviews with scouts and, and talking to them, getting to know them that way, how do you try to show off your skills and show off that you were worthy of, of a high round pick? Um, I'd say um, other things like if I was getting pitched around or whatever, I would I'd steal a base. I'd, I'd try to pick my team up. Um, I didn't have the best team, and I think everybody knew that. Um, but whatever I could do to help, I, I felt like I tried to be the best teammate I possibly could be. And uh, I think scouts took notice to that. Um, I was just trying to be a, a team leader and lead the team as, as, as best as I could. If I was getting pitched around, you know, I, I, would, I wouldn't try to do too much. I mean, early on I kind of did. I got intentionally walked a bunch. And uh, so I was, I was really anxious to get, to get swinging. But, um, yeah, well, uh, I just I toned, every, toned everything down and started focusing on, like, taking these, like, not necessarily practice, but, like, to learn more about my game and slow it down. Hmm. And let's and go back to – to... no. no, let's go Continue. back a little even further then. What went into your decision to go back to Maine? Because you were at prep school in New York. You decide to go. Was it just because of the reclassification and the potential to go to Vanderbilt a year early, or what went into that decision? It was just like it was a it was a whole lot of moving parts, but that was that was pretty much the the, the gist. So, at what point, either in the spring when you were talking to scouts, showing them all that you were worth, or what? Was it even right up till draft day or even until you signed? At what point did you realize, oh, this is actually going to work out? I am actually going to go pro this spring. Um, I actually didn't. Uh, I was, uh, I mean, I was hopeful that I would get drafted. Um, and then I was super hopeful on the first day, but I didn't want to get my hopes up. I knew I'd just like reclass and just class up, reclassify into a new class. They didn't have much scouting on me, um, so I didn't want to you know, hope so too much, but luckily I got that call on uh, June 3rd. Hmm. And did you know when you got that call that, okay, you know, this is high enough, we're going to make this work, or was there even still the potential to for you to go to Vanderbilt? I mean, how, after the draft, how, how close was that to maybe you going the other way? Um, it was. I mean, it was still kind of like 50 50 50. Um, I had a good team around me. We uh, we talked a lot, um, and we were talking every day, um, trying to figure out what the next steps were, what was best for me. And then ultimately, we just decided that um, becoming a pro was was best for me in my career. Hmm. And uh, you did get your, your minor league career started, obviously. You, you spent a couple games in the GCL, only nine before they bump you up to the Appy League. Uh, what was your welcome to minor league baseball moment? Um, um, welcome to minor league baseball. My first at bat, <laughs> I got struck out on three pitches. Oh. And I was super confident going into the game, and that right there was like a little like, this is a different, this is a different level. <laughs> They're not pitching around you in I mean, the GCL, huh? Like they were coming straight at me with with everything they had, the best they had, and uh, and I realized that 
and then I was able to buckle down. And I think I got three singles that game. Hmm. And uh, that, was, that was my that was my first my first game right there. Welcome yeah, to my league. That that'll do it. Uh, we talked before about the analytics side, what they were giving you, but in terms of other adjustments, what do you feel like was the biggest adjustment you made as the season went on between July, August, and into September? Uh, you know, what were you changing about your game as you were getting more minor league time in? Uh, yeah, there's uh, a bunch of little things. Um, my leg, my load, bringing my, toning down my load a little bit. Like it was really high the start of the season. Um, sometimes I'd, I'd drop my hands a little too low. Um, but I'd say like just trying to. I didn't. I didn't focus on it much during the season, even though this I knew I should have worked on it. But uh, pitch selection. That's something I, this off season I've been working on a lot. And how and, is that? Uh, I, I, how is okay. that something you work on during the off season? Is it facing pitch machines that mix things up? Is it facing live pitching? I, I imagine it's kind of difficult to do that against guys who can actually throw good curveballs and whatnot. But how do you work on pitch selection at this stage of the off season? Yeah, um, you know, you do. I do some some machines. I switch it up. Uh, I also do like curveball machine, slide machine, and I just I just track them. I won't even swing. I'll just sit in there and just watch the watch the pitches come in, watch the break, um, and then try to pick it up and then just track it all the way. Uh, there, we have pitches down here throwing bullpens. You can just stand in the batter's box while they're throwing a bullpen and just track it. Um, it's a lot of just like tracking balls and, and then getting a better sense of the strike zone. And then when you take live BP and everything, just if you see them out of the zone, have the, the discipline to lay off of that. Gotcha. And uh, just to end on a couple other ones, we, you are, you know, like we said, this is your first off season uh, as a Cardinals prospect. You know, some uh, fans are just kind of getting to know you. They followed your career a little bit last year. They saw you sign. But they're going to get to know you even better this year and especially in years to come as you climb towards St. Louis. How do you want to be known to Cardinals fans? What do you hope they learn about you, about your game, uh, about your personality, anything like that, uh, as they get to know you as better of one of their own? Uh, I'd say a pretty uh, a pretty outgoing, fun guy, but uh, but pretty serious when like when it needs to be. Like when you when you cross the lines, that's serious. When you're in the dugout of the locker room, you can joke around a little bit, and I like to have fun. But I like to know when uh, I, I do know when it's time to be serious, and. Uh, I like to win. Hmm. I really like to win. Yeah, speaking of winning, uh, this was going to be my next question anyways, but that segues perfectly. You ended your first professional season as a champion. I imagine that's got to be some interesting whiplash. Like you said, that, that team in Portland, Maine wasn't that great. You finished the year at Rookie Advance Johnson City winning a Nappy League title. Uh, what was it like starting your career that way, raising a trophy and how were you able to carry that momentum forward, you know, with your new teammates, guys you're just getting to know, but have already shared a ring with? Yeah, I'd say that's a that's a perfect way to to start my career because I, you know, I'm playing every year to to win a championship, 
and I, I know we get we get rings in uh in spring training, but uh I wanna I wanna get a ring in spring training every year. Um, and it's it's perfect, especially after having a, a awful season, or I wouldn't say I mean awful season in terms of not winning any games, and. Even in the GCL when I started off, I, I played pretty well, but uh, we still lose some games. And then to end up finding a team that we were a pretty um, average team, like a 50-50 team, but to pull through in, uh, in clutch situations and playoff situations, uh, that was, was, was what we needed and it was something that I needed to experience and get more familiar with, especially first season. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we'll, we'll end on two main related questions. As a lot of people who listen to this show know, I am a native New Englander myself. So when you get to go home, back to Portland, like you did for a couple weeks uh, after winning the title at Johnson City and before you went down to Palm Beach, uh, when you go home and you have you know a couple nights to yourself, what is the first food you seek out? Something you're able to get at home that you can't get anywhere else? <laughs> um. I usually like when I get my uh land and leave the airport, I like to go straight to Amato's. Okay. Um I, I love I love to go to Amato's. Um their pondo bread is mouth. <laughs> so um, describe what that is, because I feel like a lot of people at home don't know what that type of bread is. Yeah, it's like it's like a cheesy I mean, I think garlicky like bread. It's just it's so good. It's so cheesy. It's so good. <laughs> and speaking of main-related stuff, I got to ask you your opinion on this. Where do you land on Moxie, the drink? Ah, uh, Moxie. I cannot stand Moxie. Okay. All right. Good. I was going to say, because okay. if, you, if you like it, you're a true mainer, but if you don't like it, you're a person with actual taste. I will give you that. It, it almost tastes medicinal <laughs> to me. Uh, I don't understand. It tastes People drink it up there, but uh, straight. <laughs> yeah, how would you describe it? Uh, why Why don't you like? I'd say it tastes like black licorice. Yeah, that's it probably tastes weird. weird. Yeah, black licorice. The drink is not appetizing to most folks, but apparently to some main people it is. So, anyways, uh, Trajan, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. Thank you for being our guest. Best of luck down there in, in Palm Beach and all the prep. It's coming up for the 2020 season, and uh, we'll be following along wherever they send you to start 2020 in your first full season. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Benjamin Hill joins the show for uh, our final episode of January, and apparently in a conference room right next to your desk. Hi, Ben. Hello, Tyler, and hello, Sam Dykstra is sitting to my left, and uh, to Sam Dykstra's left, uh, a cup of Dunkin' Donuts, uh, per usual. <laughs> a cup of Dunkin' Donuts, milk with a splash of coffee? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I can't see, he, he, I think on purpose, he put the sticker on the cup away there from my no side. There is no sticker. There is no <laughs> sticker today. Okay. I did not pre-order. I picked it up at the, the window, like everybody else. Okay. Well... We, we will not coffee shame you anymore. But, yes, this is very strange. We've been doing this podcast. Uh, you know, I've been doing segments in this nature for years now. And we've it always involves going to a room away from the desk. A podcast or taping is a little, uh, you know, res, is it respite? Respite? 
respite. Respite. It's a respite, um, you know, from kind of where you spend the rest of the day. But now, if I just turn over, I can see Kelsey is looking at us and smiling right now. It's making <laughs> us very self-conscious to do this um, in direct view of our coworkers. But that's the reality here in the Bill Mazeroski conference room. This is like the closest we've come to having like a live podcast almost with an audience and the whole thing, just because knowing that so many of our coworkers who we spend the day with anyways are going to be peering into this room just judging us. We're facing the wall. Like we're not facing them. I don't want to be looking at them while we do this. Yeah, me too. Like I don't want – I'm not even going to look back because I can see them laughing and judging us yeah. right now. Uh, but, you know, just file this away. Live podcast taping. That's a good idea. Yeah, that Let's is a good idea. a concourse of a ballpark. Uh, invite, uh, invite all – you know, we know there's like, you know, the heads, the people who listen to the show regularly, the people who follow us on Twitter, the people who read our stuff. Uh, I think we'd love to kind of hang out, be a part of it, take in a game. Uh, let's put that on our 2020 to-do list. I really yeah. want to do that this year. I'm I want to make it happen. I'm into that idea. Um, plus, the the new uh, offices for you guys are located near multiple world's largest locations of chain restaurants. Why don't we just do it there? That'll be the saddest live podcast ever. That's true. Maybe we'll put up an <laughs> internet poll. Would you rather, uh, you know, hang out and mingle and do a podcast taping at the world's largest Fridays or the world's <laughs> largest Applebee's? Both of which are extremely accessible to our new office. Um, not to brag, but just the right now. <laughs> Not to make you all jealous. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, let's get into it. Uh, Ben's got a new story up on the site at MILB.com. Went up uh, today, this morning, uh, recording on, uh, what is today? Thursday, the 30th of January, about uh, the four, new, four uh, old ballparks that are moving out of the minor league landscape. We're welcoming in four new stadiums in 2020, the most in a single season in over a decade since 2009. Uh, and that means that four stadiums are on the way out. Fitzner Stadium, uh, Hank Aaron Stadium, the Shrine on Airline and Intimidator Stadium. Fitzner Stadium, the former home of the Potomac Nationals. Hank Aaron Stadium, former home of the Mobile Bay Bears. The Shrine on Airline, the New Orleans Zephyrs slash Baby Cakes and the Canapolis Intimidators, of course. Called Intimidator Stadium home, um, and uh, it's just kind of a, a look back on these stadiums, all of which you be, you visited uh, within relatively recent years, right, Ben? Yeah, I've visited all four of those. Uh, I think the one I'd visited uh, least recently was, uh, I believe that was Canapolis in 2014. Um, but this is something I've done on the blog the last couple of years. I mean, yes, we've been talking a lot about the four new stadiums. Um, and so we kind of mentioned the old ones in passing. Um, you know, we mentioned, we talked about Mobile, uh, you know, and it's kind of second life now, you know, post minor league baseball. Uh, but this is an annual story I've done. This is the third year in a row I've done it. In the last two years, it was on Ben's biz blog uh, which is no longer you know running but it, the blog was a great place to kind of start cataloging the now defunct minor league ballparks I visited um, you know and that blog is very active uh, or not active yeah. but um, it, it still exists and all the materials there and I would uh, you know encourage people to read it um, a link to um, my previous post listing all 16 um, defunct ballparks I'd been to prior to this year four more this year 20 in total um, but this article up on the site right now to bring it all back is, yeah, about um, just about my memories and a little overview of the four we're saying goodbye to, uh, which I'd been to all four. And, you know, it's, it's tough to say a little bit like uh, new, it was called Zephyr Field when I visited in New Orleans, New Orleans, uh, technically not even in New Orleans, but on uh, in Metairie. Materi, I always forget how to say the Yeah, Metairie, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Graham Parsons is buried there as an aside, but not at the stadium, but in that town. Yeah. Um, 
you know, that was the place I visited once on like a kind of dead Tuesday. And it was, it's kind of tough to say like, oh, I had a real sense of the place. But I do remember, you know, all the uh, New Orleans specific food they had at the concession stands, you know, a crawfish etouffee and jambalaya and uh, uh, alligator sausage and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and that is no longer on the minor league landscape with the New Orleans baby cakes, uh, locate, you know, relocating to Wichita. You know, we're saying bye to Intimidator Stadium, which um, I remember the first time I went to Intimidator Stadium in Kannapolis, um, I remember being less than a mile from the ballpark and just driving on this two-lane, tree-lined road and just being like, I think my directions are off. I think there's something wrong with this GPS. I cannot be this close to a minor league stadium. I'm on Moose Road. And then all of a sudden, just to the left, there it is, a huge parking lot in the stadium. So when you talk about building a new ballpark in Kannapolis and downtown, uh, if you'd been to Intimidator Stadium, you can really sense like that was not a downtown location. Um, it was very much just kind of out of the way and in its own spot. So that that atmosphere is going to change. And I really loved Intimidator Stadium the one night I was there. You know, I met the uh-huh guy, one of the more unique fans I'd ever met. I met some amateur wrestlers who came to all the games and had all these unique tattoos. I got to, you know, call bingo on the concourse because of the baseball bingo night. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Just that kind of real uh, – you know, low key kind of stuff that is some of my favorite memories, the, you know, uh, interesting people you meet at the ballparks. And I really liked Kannapolis for this reason. You know, we've talked a lot about Fitzner Stadium. It was where I ended my 2019 road trip travel saying goodbye to that. Um, you know, I say it in the ball in the uh, story, but, um, you know, this is a stadium that I think of all four was the most in need to just not host a minor league team anymore. Uh, but, you know, that's the great thing and why this is, uh, you know, this story is meant, you know, almost more than anything else to uh, to provoke a, a discussion. And those happen often on Twitter, but also please email me, benjamin.hill at mlb.com, if you have any, you know, stories to share of these four ballparks uh, or others. But, you know, the fits, it's just kind of like, oh, they had to get out of there. The concourses are gross and cramped and leaking and, and uh, there's no shade. And I mean, Tyler, you know, <laughs> and all that. Yeah. But at the same time, if you grew up around there and that was a place you went every day and that was a place where you had this close proximity to these players and that you made friends and, and strengthened your bonds with your family members, it doesn't really matter if it was kind of a dump. And I quote one of the fans I met, um, you know, it's from a larger story I wrote, but a, a guy who told me, you know, this might be a dump, but it's our dump. And I think to me, that's the kind of quote I relate to and uh, something I kind of love about some of these older parks is the people who show up really love the game and the people they meet and the atmosphere at these so-called dumps. And to me, they're not dumps. They are you know, beautiful in their own way, even if it might have been time to go. And uh, remembering Hank Aaron Stadium, whenever I think of that stadium, outside of it being called Hank Aaron Stadium and then relocating – Hank Aaron's childhood home to the ground of the stadium, there's also just the really unique architectural element of that ballpark where the suites are at field level and then all the seating starts like one level up. Um, all the ticketed, you know, game day uh, seating um, starts one level up beyond the seats, uh, which is just, I don't think I'd ever seen that in any other ballpark. I think McCoy has that too, right? Does does that have? Yeah, I've only been to McCoy once. Does that? Do they have the suites on the on the ground they, on the ground level like that? The regular seating is definitely a, a level up because there there's that whole thing of putting balls in buckets and lowering. Right, it right. I never sat in a suite. Yeah, we were always general admission folks, but um, I think McCoy is somewhat similar. But still, that is a 
fairly unique situation around minor league baseball. Yeah, absolutely. And McCoy, we will talking. We'll be talking about plenty about that entering uh, the final season of a Tucket. Going to be a real emotional uh, year there, and saying goodbye to that iconic stadium soon enough. But they have one more year there. So yeah, these are some of my memories. And uh, you know, read the story. Click on the link to see the other uh, sixteen uh, defunct ballparks I've been to prior to this season, and there's now twenty overall. Um, you know, we'll be talking about it on Twitter, sharing memories of not just these four ballparks, but just you know your your favorite defunct ballparks and i don't know if either of you guys have uh you know any defunct parks whether these four that have left the landscape this year or just ones from uh previous years that you think about i mean i think we all have you know memories of places that are no longer with us and they become kind of uh profound as the years go by when you remember these things and i think there's real emotional connections of a lot of these places hmm. i was actually going to turn that around on you and not to put your feet too much under the fire but either between these four or even if you want to expand it out to the full 20 which of these do you miss most of the, the 20 parks that uh, you visited that are now defunct, at least from a minor league? Group? Yeah, you know, for me, it's a little different because it's not like these are places that I went to, you know, four, six, eight, 12 times a year for years and years and have this like, you know, mother load of memories. Um, so for me, it's ones that I might have just even visited once, maybe twice. Um, you know, I always think of uh, Sam Lynn. Stadium in Bakersfield, just because it was one of the biggest dumps um, that you'd ever visit. Talk about like you know this may be a dump, but it's our dump. Um, I loved that place so much because the fans who showed up and the staff members who chose to work in such a tough environment, you know, they had kind of a uh, you know a cynical mentality about a lot of things. You know that kind of gallows humor you use to get by in a difficult situation. But the love for the place and this idea and this feeling that they wouldn't really want to be anywhere else because that that old dump with the sun setting in your eyes and uh, everything kind of decaying and and uh, the eccentrics who would show up to the ballpark and the big old asphalt <laughs> parking lot like you know the potholes in there. Just as soon as you rolled into that place, there was that feeling of like whoa. Like there's minor league baseball still being played here, and um, actually, uh, Josh Jackson and I, uh, when we, you know we we traveled together a little bit last year, MILB.com's Josh Jackson, and uh, we stopped at Samlin just uh, in between. Where were we? We were going to Fresno, I suppose, from Vegas. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we just stopped, and there was going to be an indie league game that night, but it wasn't starting for like three hours, and we just didn't do it time-wise. But just stopping there and walking up to the ballpark and just being like, this hosted minor league baseball just two, three years ago? It just seemed surreal. You know, kind of similarly, I only went to Helena once. Uh, it was at Kendrick Legion Field. But to go to a place with a wooden grandstand and that rickety old press box on the roof, those are the places I get most romantic romantic about because when they're gone, like there's nothing like it coming back, you know, at all. And I'm not sure that any of the four that are defunct after this season, none of them are, I don't think, you know, particularly historic. You know, now actually I'm looking at it. You know, what was the oldest one there? Um, the Fitz opened in 1984. So, you know, we're not saying goodbye to any like super old historic parks this year. So I think from my perspective, I'm maybe not as connected to any of these four as some of the older ones that I felt, oh man, now that this is gone, it's never coming back. I think that's where it hits me the hardest when a place is a portal to another time, another era, uh, 100% that you will have a hard time getting anymore now that it's gone that kind of thing yeah it's funny to think like hank aaron is what i would have thought of as being historic in some way but even that only opened in 1997 yeah in the southern league if you look at it that was the oldest ballpark in the southern league and now the oldest ballpark in the southern league is probably 
what, Jackson maybe? It's like I don't think there's that whole league has a ballpark that is yeah. more than 20 years old anymore. So it's yeah, kind of remar- crazy. Kind of remarkable that Hank Aaron Stadium opened in 1997. Um, you know, it is is gone now. <laughs> you know, it's not gone. It's still standing, but it's not hosting minor league baseball and probably won't uh, at least for the foreseeable future. You know, that's not an old ballpark. I mean, it's not new, <laughs> but it's not like we're talking about some place that's like it was built know, after Camden Yards and Camden Yards was this big revolution in stadiums yeah yeah absolutely and that that also kind of had you know ripple effect in the minor league and the minor league stadium boom and um you know that's a even canapolis uh you know intimidator stadium yes it was not in a great location yeah it was you know pretty no frills but even that was built with you know kind of newer some of the newer architectural principles it had an open concourse and it wasn't um it, it didn't feel super old in terms of the design and, and overall style um, and that opened in the mid-90s, I believe. And it's kind of funny to be saying goodbye to these places. And it makes you think these ballparks that we're talking about now, you know, whatever, opening in 2020, whatever it may be, Toyota Field, home of the Rocket City Trash Pandas. It, it just seems inconceivable to think that in 20 years or 25 years, will there be discussions about that no longer being good enough? <laughs> you yeah, know, right. yeah. it, it seems hard to believe. What are the shelf life of yeah, these well, multi-million dollar stadiums? Yeah, 100%. Because um, when they open, they seem like they're built for the long haul, and they should be. And I hope they are. But it's interesting when you look at the age of some of these facilities and realize they're not that old. And, and uh, then think about the ballparks you go to that one might go to that aren't that old and thinking like, huh, are we going to start – is there starting to be rumblings about this not even being acceptable anymore? You know, there's so much that goes into us. And as we are talking, a office fire alarm has gone off. Um I think the mic is probably picking this up, but it is. Oh, good. <laughs> well, this is what happens in the the world of podcasting, folks. You just you just uh, you make do. And, it's all unplanned. And if it is a real fire, we are prioritizing talking to you, <laughs> the listener, um, as opposed to we're putting ourselves, our lives in danger in order to bring you content. So we're, we're just going to plow through. I think. No, we're not. We're hanging in the balance right now. If it like goes off, quick. Uh, uh, Oh no, still going. No. Um, I was like, "How do you hear it stopping?" It's definitely. I was going to say that we can that we can keep it uh, that we can keep the podcast rolling. If not, uh, you should all probably yeah. Well, looking over our shoulder and looking at uh, our coworkers, they are all seated. They are also committed to bringing milb.com to life every day. That they too. <laughs> I, I really wish this had happened like after you had shared a major hot take. <laughs> yeah. Risking life and limb to yes. Uh, so and so stadium really needed to go. <laughs> oh. oh, we're in the. Oh, in the clear. You still have flashing lights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's pretend that was the hot take alert. <laughs> that was. That's from now on. That's what we're gonna. Now we're you just have gonna cut that audio. into. Yeah. Yeah. What? What's that now? Is that a beep? They're yeah. probably gonna make some announcements. Yeah. We're leaving this in for. I just want you to know. I hope we this do. Is, this is staying in the show. This is staying in this week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> ben, let's continue. Um, the uh, promo season uh, release extravaganza is uh, kind of upon us. Teams start rolling out their promotional calendars for uh, the new year. Really, I mean, toward the end of uh, the previous calendar year, and then, of course, into January and February, we see a lot of promo stuff. But uh, what have you seen so far? It seems like it's been kind of quiet so far. It has been. And, you know, I, I, I maybe I think this every year. 
but it it seems like there hasn't been as enough uh, uh, as much announced here in late January than there usually is. Uh, February will obviously be a huge month. You know, we're starting to see it trickle in. Uh, a few teams have released their full promo schedules. Um, uh, Delmarva Shorebirds, Pensacola Blue Wahoos, um, Carolina Mudcats. Uh, I thought had a really good schedule. One thing that the Carolina Mudcats are doing that like, through the years between two geographical locations and like eight different affiliates, they they have all these different hot dog you know special nights with a specialty hot dog tied into an era of team history. You know, so a uh, Milwaukee dog or something related to the Braves and and all that. I, I think that's a really cool thing to do. That is a cool idea. Um, so yeah, might be writing about that down the line. Uh, yesterday, you know, Inland Empire, Inland Empire 66ers, they, uh, they announced that the uh, the burritos were coming back. You know, they they they're real. Big. They did that last year in alternate theme identity, uh, theme night identity. Uh, the thing with that was, uh, you know, it's a California burrito that has French fries in it. So they the graphic, you know, makes clear that uh, there are French fries emerging from this burrito. Uh, so that came out. Uh, Wisconsin Timber Rattlers always been big on the theme nights, always doing well. Uh, had an eight bit uh, video game theme night announced with some really cool 8-bit uh you know hats and jerseys uh themed around that uh so yeah so we're starting to see it trickle out and you know i'll save this conversation maybe for next week but something i was just doing before i came in here uh it used to be on the blog and so maybe this will be something i just do on twitter and maybe crowdsource it a little bit but uh you know it's it's, uh, we're past due in trying to figure out uh you know what uh, theme night anniversary celebrations that we will be seeing uh, in twenty. All right. And you know it just makes everyone feel old. But you know I was just looking at the movies of nineteen ninety five, which are twenty five years old. And uh, movies stop. of two thousand or twenty years yeah, old. Yeah, two thousand is twenty. You all wanna... Yeah. So I was looking at nineteen ninety five. You know uh, the top grossing film that year was Die Hard with a Vengeance, which I that was worldwide gross. Uh, but Toy Story, I don't know. That one might be difficult. I don't know how Disney some of the licensing in Disney, yeah. you know, maybe there'll be something like a Toy Story. Uh, but but uh, Apollo 13, I thought Waterworld could be maybe a fun one. <laughs> wow, that'd be entertaining. Uh, Jumanji, you know, teams have done Jumanji stuff in the past. It's 25 years since the first Jumanji. Uh, Braveheart was the best picture that year. Um, so just time to start thinking about uh, Billy Madison. You know, I think, you know, Sandler, Adam Sandler's never really not been in pop culture, but uh, that was his first uh, starring movie, starring role post SNL, Billy Madison, I think it maybe be a fun, more like Thirsty Thursday type of thing. Um, and so on and so forth. So I'll do a little more work on that. And maybe we can talk about that next week, especially maybe after I uh, put this out to Twitter. But it's time to start thinking about the year 2000. In the year 2000. Oh, man. Somebody needs to Yeah, do that. somebody needs if anybody does, If anybody ever does a Conan O'Brien night, I will be there for it. Any front office is listening. He's my, he's my hero in life. And if you find a way to get Conan and La Bamba to come do in the year 2000 in a minor league baseball game, I will be there. I just want you all to know. Yeah, and teams, if you're listening, if you haven't thought about this before, at least maybe use that as a way to kind of uh, promote some of your uh, 2000 related theme nights, at least just with yeah, a year please. 2000 video. I know some of you got you people, you people. <laughs> I know some of you, you people working these front, in the front office. I got mad because they're young. I'm like, ah, oh, you probably don't even remember it. That's why you I said, don't even know the year 2000. You bit. people. Uh, but yeah, in the year 2000, Conan O'Brien, look it up. Uh, talk to your look it up. Talk, oh God! Yeah, talk to your Everybody talk go. to your GM who's like you know older than you are, and he'd be like, Hello. <laughs> and if we can get Max involved somehow, Max Weinberg. Yes, that, I I think that just is all of my interests. Yeah, 
that's the Venn uh, diagram. I'm into yeah. it. Yeah. So it's, in the year 2000. It'd be one of those things where, like, you know, people get kind of a, a background, you know, like Kenny Banya, the actor who plays Kenny Banya, will show up to, like, a Seinfeld night. This will be, like, Mark Pender, like, the random guitarist from the band. He'll be, like, the one to make himself available for uh, for Conan O'Brien nights. Conan, That's fine. I, I would imagine. I'd, I'd be into it. I'd still go. If you're his like agent, reach out to appearance. us. We'll, we'll make it work. <laughs> Just so happens, Mark Fender's agent, big fan of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot to dive into. The year 2000, the year 1995, 25 years, um, you know, 1990, 30 years, and so on and so forth. Um, that means I turned 35 this year, by the way, for anyone who cared. Uh, Benjamin Hills on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz on Instagram at the Ben's Biz. You can find his stuff at milb.com, including the uh, the now defunct ballpark story. And uh, Ben, we will talk to you next week and make sure the office isn't on fire. Hey, I will. I will. Uh, we made it through. Um, we soldier on for you, the listener. Uh, we love you very much, and we would do anything to bring you the top level podcast that you deserve. I like it. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, guys. Final segment on this week's episode of the show before the show, MILB.com, is your spot for all of the latest and greatest in minor league baseball. You can get in touch with the show podcast at MILB.com. Um, we've each got stuff coming up to the site. Uh, I've got a feature, I believe, next week. One story will will run, uh, and then a, a feature coming up the week after. It feels like I've it's been forever since I've had like a, an actual – feature thing to go up to the site there's been some really really cool stuff though um that has been on the site and we're gonna have to start talking with uh, with more of our writers uh andrew batterano had a fantastic piece that uh dove into kyle Bodie and his work with the cincinnati reds of course the kind of driveline sports uh or driveline baseball visionary um and what he's been doing with um pitching in the red system uh, which is a, a great story that's up on the site right now. We also have a uh, really great story from Joe Bloss on uh, Ed Blankmeyer, who spent 24 years as the head coach of the baseball program at St. John's University. He is now the manager of Class A short season Brooklyn uh, in the New York Mets organization. So not a real long move geographically for Ed Blankmeyer in terms of his uh, his baseball job, but man, that is a, a whole different ball game. <laughs> no, Pardon but- the pun to go from being a college coach for uh, nearly a quarter century to being a, a professional manager um, just the following season. So that's a really good story. It's up on the site right now. And uh, you should check all that out. Yeah, no, that, and, you know, we've talked before about it. It feels like a quiet time of, of the season right – or the off season right now because spring training is around the corner but isn't here yet. Uh, we are waiting for a potential Mookie Betts trade, but there's no ticking clock against that necessarily, or a Chris Bryant trade for that matter. Um, but that doesn't mean the the features have stopped at MILB.com. To have some of these stories are really interesting, and some of our writers are allowed to sit on them a little bit longer and, and develop them, and um, some really cool stuff is coming out. I'm really looking forward to your story coming out next week. I won't tease what it is, um, but for anybody who can probably figure this out, it's very tied to Tyler's interests uh specifically what he usually has on his wall um if you've ever followed his twitter account you might know what that means but uh and you t- talk to somebody else who shares that interest which i think usually somebody makes unexpected too somebody unexpected cool. yes. yeah yeah which is a fun one so um yeah be on the lookout for all of that stuff at milb.com and uh we will catch up with you a week from now he's sam dykstra i'm tyler Mott. we'll talk to you next week